Good morning. Uh, my name's Lou, and I'm really happy to see you all again today. Uh, and I'm excited about what we're doing together as a church. We started, uh, as you've heard already this morning, we, we were approaching the fourth anniversary of our, of our existence as a church. And a lot of stuff has happened over the last uh, four years or so. And last week, uh, Pastor Tom talked about where we started and how we have progressed and where we are now. And it was in the context of talking about uh, God giving us a new vision for, for our church over the next few years because the vision we started with four years ago has, is no longer a vision statement, it's a description statement. What we said we wanted to be four years ago, we pretty much are now, not fully, not completely, but we've, we've made progress toward it, and we need a new vision to propel us into the next uh, stage of God's uh, calling for us as a church. So we're working together on a, on a series of the, now and over the next few weeks where we talk about what God seems to be saying to us in this stage of our life as a church and in this place where we are in the city of Worcester. Uh, and Tom began to talk about that last week, and I'm going to continue with that uh, this morning. But we have a theme verse for, our, for this series that we're working on out of Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, which is there. Okay, but so the, here's the big part of it. So would you kind of say this together with me, okay? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Uh, Chris Wright, Christopher J.H. Wright, wrote a book called The Mission of God's People. And in that book, in one section of it, he talks about something that happened in the city of London in early 2009. He said there were ads appeared on the London red buses. I don't know if you've seen those buses. The, they tend to be the, the double-decker. They're, they're kind of cool looking. But ads appeared on the sides of them. And the ad said this, there probably is no God. Therefore, stop worrying. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. There probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. And Chris Wright remarks uh, at seeing this, uh, he says, you know, there's a kind of a, I'm paraphrasing now, but there's kind of a dubious logic to this because it suggests that the saying on the, on the side of the bus suggests that belief in God only makes people anxious. It makes them worried. It spoils their enjoyment. And that's kind of dubious logic because all the surveys, all the, that have been done indicate that people who have belief in God tend to worry a whole lot less and enjoy their life a whole lot more. But beyond that, Chris Wright said, you know, the Beyond the dubious logic of it, it just seems boring. I mean, what's the story there? It's, it's just boring. Now, my response to this was, was that it was dubious logic. It was boring. There's no real story there. But it's also a denial of reality. It's a denial both of God's reality and of life's reality. There probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. What does that say to the person who's grieving, who's lost somebody close to them, or lost a job, or is struggling and they, ha- they don't know what to do? What does that say to people who are experiencing the, 
the trauma of Ebola or famine in South Sudan or you know, are part of the Yaqizi in, uh, in Iraq and in Syria and they're getting decimated by ISIL. What does it say to people like that? What does it say to people who don't know how they're going to, what they're going to do with their children or their, their marriage is falling apart and they don't know what to do? What does it say to them? There probably is no God now. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. How does that help them? There's no good news in that. No good news whatsoever because the enemies of human peace and comfort and prosperity and life are still enthroned. They're still sitting on their throne. We live in a world that's broken. Broken by war and violence and oppression, by racism, by sexism, by classism, by violence, by selfishness. We live in a world where people are broken by poverty and by sadness and grief and sorrow and addiction. We live in a world that knows pain. And the only one who can enter into this world of pain and bring good news is the one who created it. Now stop worrying. There is probably is no God. Now stop worrying. Enjoy your life. There's no good news at all. The book of Isaiah presents a completely different perspective on life and on what's good news, a, different, a completely different perspective on what the world needs. The prophet Isaiah knows all about evil and arrogance and exploitation. He knows about violence. He knows about destruction because he prophesies for over 50 years in the southern nation of Judah. This is a time when the nation of Israel, people of Israel, have been divided. There are now two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom of Israel that at the time of Isaiah is under, occupa- is under occupation. There's a southern kingdom of Judah, which is free, but not really free because there are hostile nations. Assyria just closing in on them and uh, they're paying tribute to, to Assyria. He knows all about this, but he knows about it from the inside too because in the inside, it's, just not, it's not just that there are powers from the outside weighing in and uh, oppressing, but even within the nation of Judah, the rich are exploiting the poor, the, those who are powerful are, are using and manipulating the weak. It's a mess. It's broken. And Isaiah looks at that and his heart breaks. And again and again and again, he warns the kings, Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. He keeps warning them and he warns the nation and they keep disregarding him. Most of the time, they disregard him. There comes a point near the end where Hezekiah is king and the Assyrian forces are there aligned their, their mass outside the city of Jerusalem. And they're being taunted. The, 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 
the Jews in Jerusalem being taunted by the, the forces of King Sennacherib of Assyria. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is tempted to give in. And Isaiah says, don't give in. And the forces outside saying, if you think that your God's going to save you, where is he? All the other nations had their gods and we destroyed them. The king, the real king, is Sennacherib. Sennacherib is king and bow before him or die. And Isaiah says, no, do not do this because it's a lie. Sennacherib is not king. And Isaiah says this because Isaiah had a vision. He had a vision. Chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And there were, there, there were angels, if you will, flying around, proclaiming to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. I saw it, Isaiah says. And I know it's true. Whatever King Sennacherib or any other earthly king says, it's a lie. There is one God, one king. He's sitting on his throne. He's in control. And this time, Hezekiah listens to him and doesn't bow down. And Judah gets delivered. But it doesn't last long. Isaiah is finally killed, probably by the fifth king, Manasseh, although we're not, it's, we're not sure. But it's likely that Manasseh kills him. He's, it's likely that that's what Hebrews 11 talks about when it talks about prophets sawn in half. The, the Talmud says that that's what happened to Isaiah. But along the way, with this image, this vision that Isaiah has about this god who is exalted, seated on his throne, thrown high, lifted up. Isaiah also has this vision of God's anointed being sent. In the first, so throughout the book of Isaiah, we keep hearing about this God who's about God sending his Messiah king who will come. He will come to bring justice, to bring freedom, to bring deliverance. We also get this other image in the, all the way th- throughout the book of Isaiah of one who will be a suffering servant. And the Jews didn't link those two together. The Messiah king and the suffering servant, that made no sense to them. But the servant would take the place and, re- and take upon himself the suffering of the people. And when Isaiah talks about this Messiah king coming 
and this suffering servant who will come to take upon himself the brokenness of the people. He keeps using the imagery of liberation, both the imagery of Exodus out of Egypt and what God did in taking his people out of slavery in Egypt and also the imagery of the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year of the Lord's favor, which you can read about in Leviticus 25. Now what what God was saying through Leviticus 25 is that he's a God who loves justice and mercy and he hates oppression and manipulation. So Leviticus 25 was God's way of ensuring social justice in the nation of Israel so that nobody got oppressed, but everybody had fair shake and opportunity to thrive and prosper. Every 50 years, people who were in debt had their debts forgiven. People who lost their land because of debts, they received their lands back. People who were in debtor's prisons because of their debts couldn't pay them. They would be set free and start over in their own lands with with real opportunity to rise up and start over. God said that. God said, this is what I want my people to be. A people who look out for one one another and do not oppress one another and allow for real opportunity. The problem was that there's no record of Israel ever really obeying God's command, fully at least, in Leviticus 25. There are little, little, you know, sort of glimmers of that happening. Nehemiah, for example, has a, has a section where Nehemiah challenges the people to do that, and they do that in, in kind of a short way. But they didn't live it out. But in Isaiah's vision, he's saying there's going to come a day where God is going to send his Messiah king, and God's justice will be carried out, And all people will be set free, not just from foreign oppression, but from internal oppression. They'll be set free and released to wholeness. That's the vision of Isaiah. And Isaiah holds on to that through 50 years plus of ministry And on some level, the people of Israel hold on to it, waiting and hoping that the Messiah will come to do what Isaiah prophesied would happen. Flash forward 700 years. Seven fifty, maybe. Jesus is preaching throughout the region of Galilee. And he comes into his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into his hometown synagogue. And his reputation has preceded him. Crowds have started to form where he's preaching. So when he gets to his hometown of synagogue, he's invited to come up and preach. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus takes the scroll and he opens it up and he begins to read. He reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, first part of it. But he doesn't read it exactly the way that it's written in Isaiah. 
he drops out a phrase, includes a phrase from Isaiah 58, 6. But this is what he says. This is what he reads. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and from Isaiah 58, 6. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sits down. Everybody's looking at him. And then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd in that synagogue is stunned. They're not sure what to do because the words, as the words start to to uh, sort of sink into them. They realize that Jesus has just said, I'm the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. And Isaiah's vision, Isaiah's prophecy has just been fulfilled. And he's also said it's not fulfilled the way you thought it would be fulfilled. That's what the rest of the passage is really about if you go to verse 30. He's upending the way they think this passage is going to work out, this prophecy is going to work out. And it starts because he ends, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your, own, in your hearing. And where he ended was talking about the year of the Lord's favor. Now what Isaiah said in the next part of that verse 2, in the day of vengeance of our God. And what Jesus is saying to the synagogue crowd is that it's the year of the Lord's favor. It's not the day of the Lord's vengeance. The crowd's okay with favor. But part of their understanding is favor is that their enemies get oppressed. Their enemies get judged. And Jesus is saying, no, This is the year, this is the time of the Lord's favor. And he's consistent in that message. You may remember, a lot lot of you know the verse in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes him would not perish, 
but have everlasting life. And then the next verse, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What Jesus said to that synagogue crowd is that this is the time of the Lord's favor. And when he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, by today, he meant today, right then, and today, right now. We are in the time of the Lord's favor. We're in the time of the Lord's favor. And when he quoted from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, he wasn't just quoting a little bit of it. The idea behind it was that the large vision, the, you, that we were supposed to read it in context and see what God was saying. So he outlines what the Lord's favor looks like. And he's saying, what that looks like is what I'm here to do. And it starts by proclaiming good news. Proclaiming. Three times in the, in the passage that Jesus quotes from Isaiah, you hear the word proclaim. It starts with the, with the word proclaim good news. Because people need to hear good news. Because without hearing good news, they don't see what's right in front of them. He preaches good news, proclaims good news to the poor, and it has impact. It means good news on a variety of levels, personal and societal, spiritual and material and economic and political, all of that. Part of what it means to proclaim good news to the poor is to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to proclaim that God had sent him as a suffering servant who would take our place and forgive our sins so that the penalty due to sins would not fall on us but on him. Isaiah talked about that in Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12 where he talks, a messianic passage talking about being the suffering servant who takes upon himself the sins of the world. Part of the good news is that the sins of the world have been dealt with in the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, the love of God and the justice of God meet, where love is poured out and justice is met, but not by us, but by the Lord Jesus himself. We have been reconciled to God through Jesus' work on the cross. We are no longer imprisoned by our own sin, by the power of it or the debt of it. We've been set free. We were blind. We, didn't even, we couldn't even see God. And because of what Christ has done, the scales have been ripped from our eyes and we can see God now. We have spiritual sight. We were under the oppression of the devil. And at the cross of Christ, the devil was dethroned. He's no longer in power. Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. We've been set free from the devil's rule. All of that is true. We are people who have been freed and restored and reconciled and renewed and transformed. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, part of what it means is we become a people of prayer. We said the Lord's Prayer earlier. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, we're told to pray, and your will be done. Where? On earth, just as it is in heaven. So part of what it means to be redeemed, reconciled, renewed, transformed, people living in the kingdom of God as we pray that the kingdom of God keep coming and the will of God keep coming, uh, uh, be done on earth. On earth. Now. It also means that we proclaim this good news to, to everyone we know, everyone around us, that there is forgiveness There is freedom, there is comfort, there is love, there is grace, there is mercy, there is power to be changed and transformed. We proclaim that. We also live out the implications of all of this in our world. We are the people of God who love what God loves. What does God love? God loves people. God loves justice. God loves mercy. God loves humility. God loves generosity. We live that out in our world. We live that out in our city and community, in our personal relationships with other people, in our corporate relationships as a church. We're the people whom God has put in the world to demonstrate what it looks like when God reigns. We're the people that God has put in the world to to live out God's justice and mercy. So we demonstrate this. I'm going to read a couple of passages from Isaiah just so you kind of, just so you hear some of the dimensions of this. This is from Isaiah 58. And I'm going to start with verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, spiritual yoke, but also physical, political yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. And he continues. This is the kind of language, by the way, that Jesus uses in Matthew 25 where he talks about when you serve the least of these, you're serving him. Right? Right? 
in Isaiah 61. He says, verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are people the Lord has blessed. In the context of Isaiah 61, what is being said here is that as they start to live out transformed love, lives because they have been freed by God, as they start living that out, the world will see that they have been blessed by God and that God is a God of justice and love and goodness. And there's no other way in our world that the world will know except by the people of God living out who they are, who we are, because of what God has done for us in Christ and because the Spirit of God lives in us. The Spirit of God lives in us with the values of God impressed upon us, with the truth of God emblazoned in our minds and hearts and souls. We are kingdom people, not people of this world. And because we are kingdom people in God's plan, the world gets transformed little by little by little by little as we live out our as we live as a city on a hill, as salt and light in this world. When you look at the history of the church, you see periods in the history of the church when the church really grabbed this. They believed it. It was true in the first couple centuries of the church's existence. And at various times since then, where the church really grabbed hold of this vision of God the King ruling, living in and through them, and extending his rule in and through them to bring justice and righteousness, forgiveness and grace and mercy and transformation. And there was renewal and revival. And I look at our world and I say, Lord, do this again in your church and through your church to your glory. See, I have this vision I'm not, I'm, I don't want to say that it's God's vision so much, but it might be, because it's driving me. I have this vision for the city of Worcester and for our region, that the church in the city would be a church that brings delight to God. And the way the church partners together in friendship and in unity and in prayer and in partnership to reach and bless this city and this region. I have this vision of the church bringing delight in God because it lives out the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 that the church would be one even as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. One. One with one another and one with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have this vision of the church being one church in a city Many congregations, one church with many different kinds of expressions of what the church does and looks like, but united together in the common vision of Jesus Christ as Lord. And I have this vision of the city of Worcester being the place 
where when people see the name Worcester, they say, oh, Worcester, that's the city where God dwells. Worcester is the city where God dwells because God is so powerful, so evident, meeting needs in the city, freeing people, restoring people, saving people, delivering people, where people actually look out for one another, where people meet one another's needs, where when somebody is broken, other broken people come around him and her. Where family, families get helped and children get taught. I have this vision of a city of Worcester being the place where God dwells and people from all around coming to see God at work through his people. And I think to myself, it's happened before. God has done this before. Will he not do it again if we cry out to him and trust him and believe him and start to live it out by ourselves? Will not God pour out his spirit afresh and reveal his glory and display his character? Isn't that a vision worth living for and buying into, committing oneself to? Isn't it? We are revisioning as a church. We want to be God's church, Christ's church, Holy Spirit-led, empowered, filled to the praise of God's glory and to the good of our community, to the enlarging of our own hearts and souls with the goodness and fullness of God. May it be so. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the prisoner free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are God who makes promises and keeps them. You promised to come and you came. You promised your spirit and you poured out your spirit and your spirit indwells us. It fills us. You're a God who loves justice and mercy and you gave us justice and mercy and we have received it. You're a God who's created your church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, will not prevail against it. And your church is your instrument of grace and mercy to this broken world. And we ask, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would emblazon this vision, that you would print it on our minds and hearts and souls in such a way that it changes who we are for eternity. It changes what we do for this world and this community. It enables us to be the people you have called us to be. 
Lord, we pray for ourselves and individuals, for Journey as a church, for our community, that you would come afresh with power and glory and goodness and that you would take residence in our own minds and hearts and souls and in our city and community to the praise of your glory and to the transformation, the deliverance, the freedom, the comfort, the peace, the wholeness, the wholeness, Lord, of our region. Pray this in Jesus' name, your name, O God. Amen.